Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that whether we are considered significant in the eyes of this world or not, we are but a vapour on the scales before you. We acknowledge that apart from you, we can do nothing. And we thank you that you have provided the only way by which we can be saved and that you have provided in your word everything that we need for life, godliness, that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. We know there's not a single page of your scriptures that you do not desire to be profitable in the life of your children to form them to become more like Christ. So, Lord, as we look to your word, may we hear your word. May it hold a mirror before us to, to show us who we truly are, but it may it also show you the wonder and splendor, the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And may we not just learn about you, but may we learn you. May we be changed by you through your scripture, through the conviction and training of your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the late 90s, I worked in a call centre. Now, luckily, it wasn't an outbound phone call, so I wasn't the one who had to ring you up with these annoying sort of phone calls. It was a technical support uh, call centre for, what was at the time, the second biggest internet company in Australia. Remember when Malcolm Turnbull was there as the Prime Minister and he was bragging about his involvement in a particular company? Well, that was the company that he was on the board for, which, incidentally, no longer exists, a company that was once called Aussie Mail, I think, IINet might have been the one who eventually bought them out. It was a big company. It was spread across a number of buildings, a number of different floors, and eventually within the technical department, I became a team leader of about 15 different employees. One thing you learn in that particular role is the quality of people's work varies a lot. In that particular role as team leader from my desk, I could listen in to any single one of those 15 people's phone calls to hear exactly the way in which they spoke to people, the way they treated them, the advice that they gave. And I can tell you there was a big variety. One of my favourite parts of the job was sometimes I would go downstairs and I'd call into the call centre, which provided me a unique opportunity A, the people who were receiving the phone calls would think the boss is out of sight. And two, it was just the fun of putting on a whole pile of novelty voices and bringing difficult problems, sometimes even doing it right at the end of their shift when you don't want those sorts of difficult phone calls. Remember there was one guy there who worked there, his name, well, his actual name wasn't Tibor, but he was known as Tibor. The way he got the job was he hacked into the company and then he sent them an email with all of the information and then said, give me a job. And they did. So it gave you a pretty good idea of the the ethical value that they employed him upon. And the workplace, they kind of had, I think it was, maybe it was Wednesday to Friday, you had to wear like proper business attire, but Monday, Monday, Tuesday, you could wear whatever you like. And Tibor took that to the edge. He wore some of the most offensive shirts. Sometimes he was actually told to put it on inside out because of some of the things that were on his shirts. Now, poor old Tibor eventually got sacked. 
He was working a night shift, that was the midnight till 8 o'clock in the morning, an eight-hour shift because he slept for six of those eight hours. There was only a few people in the building at that time of night, um, so he had the headset on and he, was, he just worked on the presumption that if a phone call came in, he'd wake up and he'd chat to them, but he didn't. Uh, people called through and they heard somebody probably snoring. We often th- we think that a good worker are those who respect their bosses, ones who encapsulate the value of, of the company and their leaders and do so at all times without being having to be told constantly to do it, without having to be watched. As Christians, how does our claim to submit to Jesus in every aspect of our life compare? Do we need to be constantly told? Does our conduct differ depends on what other people are watching? Or are we a bit like Tibor? We can do the right thing when the right eyes are on, but when it's a night shift and just you and a couple of other people, anything goes. What we're looking at this morning is quite closely connected to what we looked at last week when we looked at two different types of wisdom, where James introduced that with a question in, in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? And he spoke about a true and godly wisdom that was sincere, that was pure, that was gentle and impartial, that was expressed in the things that which you did. But he contrasted that with a false wisdom that was predominantly characterised by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. And he says, wherever those two things exist, selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, you'll have discord and every vile practice. Almost the unwritten slogan of those people was, nobody is better and nobody deserves better than me. Today again we're introduced by a question in the first verse of chapter 4 which kind of describes a little bit the outworkings of this disorder and jealousy that came from selfish ambition. James asks, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So he asks the questions, what's the problem? What's the root cause of all these quarrels and fights that you have? And then he kind of puts it before him and says, isn't it not just your selfish ambition, going after your selfish desires and passions? And when every single person is so selfish and wants what they want, then you're going to find someone else who, who wants what they want and your two different views are going to butt heads and conflict. And as a result, it wages war within you. In these 10 verses, we're going to look at desires that wage war in the first five verses, but also the call to humbly submit in 6 to 10, that we might be good and faithful servants. When you think about a time that you've experienced major tension, and you think, where did that come from? 
I think on the majority of times you'll realise that it came down to somebody not getting what they want or somebody not getting what they think they were entitled to, something that they think they deserved. Unfortunately, it even happens in churches. You see, massive big divisions happen in churches often over really little trivial personal preferences. And party A won't give an inch to party B over this particular thing because this is what I want, this is my ideal, and this is my ideal, not budging on any. Team A, team B. Music is a common one that happens about a particular style of music. If you sing something other than this, I'm going. Guess what? The Bible actually never describes what is godly style of music. Content is important. It says we should sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, a variety of different types of things. But the root of all conflict is usually two or more people who have a selfish desire, something that they want, butting head with someone else who has an opposing selfish desire that they want. Have you ever noticed that kids don't need to be taught to cry or to crack it when you take something away from them that they want? They didn't learn that. It's a natural instinct. But look at verse 2 and you'll see how punctuation can make a little difference when you see between two different translations. The NOV's got, you want something but you don't get it, full stop. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want, full stop. You quarrel and you fight, full stop. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, incidentally, the original Greek text doesn't have punctuation. There are no commas, there are no full stops, so when people are translating, they have to make presumptions as to where these things need to take place. So the ESV, on the other hand, doesn't have so much breaks as the NIV does. It says you desire and you do not have, so, or as, as a consequence of that, you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So ESV kind of brings out that thing. They do these evil actions as a result of them not getting what they want. They fight. They quarrel. I don't know if it's actually true of those to whom James was writing, whether people were actually going so far as to murder or if he was just painting the bigger picture of how bad it could get. All because they don't get the things that they desire. Desires aren't necessarily always a bad thing. The Bible uses speaking about your desires in a good sense. It also speaks about your desires in a bad sense. For example, an example of good use of desires, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now what the psalmist is saying is if you delight yourself in the Lord, in other words, your desires are for the things of God, of his will, his character, then he delights to give you things in accordance to his will and his character. 
To give you godly desires is something he wants you to have. That verse doesn't mean, as some have taken it, we almost reinterpret it as, if you're a Christian, God will give you what you want. That's not what it says. It says, delight yourselves in the Lord. If he is your delight, if he is your pursuit, if he is your joy, you'll want the things that pertain to him. And it is his joy to give you those things. But there are also times when desires, particularly from a fleshly origin and of a fleshly focus, are not a good thing. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions from your flesh which wage war against your soul. They're two different opposing desires, one good, one bad. One that is a desire for the things of God, for the things that are honouring God, for his glory. The other, for your own fleshly desires, for your glory and your enjoyment. One desire which will grow you closer in your relationship with God and another which will wage war against your soul. That's pretty harsh wording, isn't it? To think that when we, we go into and we entertain our fleshly desires, it's not just a minor discrepancy, not just like a minor little whoopsie or an inconvenience, a little blip in our spiritual walk. They wage war against your souls. For James's readers, that war expressed itself in bitter jealousy, selfish ambition and all sort of disorder and every evil that came out of that. Desires that drove them to anger when they weren't fulfilled. Desires that weren't fulfilled even if they were to bring them before God in prayer. Because they were wrong. They were wrong for two reasons. Verse 2, James says, You do not have because you do not ask. A, because they just think they're so independent and not in need of God they don't ask. Or B, because our conscience has a certain common sense that says, this is stupid. God is not going to honour this prayer. I'm not going to even bother praying it. When we know that something is not the will of God, we're not going to bring it before him and just hope that it is. It will twist his arm. But then in verse 3, describes some times when they do ask and they still don't have. They ask and do not receive because they ask wrongly to spend it on their passions. You do realise that God knows every single thought in your head you can't manipulate God by using some great articulate prayer and praying with such volume and gusto and maybe even producing some tears that somehow you'll twist his arm he knows your heart he knows if you are asking it for your own selfish purposes you can dramatise it all you like he knows your heart When you plead for something that is ungodly, or even if you plead for something that is godly but for your own selfish gain, he knows and he won't grant. When it says ask wrongly, it doesn't mean you use the wrong words. 
It's not him saying, oh, you forgot the magic word. You didn't say please. But you had a wrong motive to fulfil a selfish desire of your own. But pleasure, again, is not always a bad thing either. To do things for pleasure is not a bad thing on all occasions. Psalm 16, you make known to be the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We're told to, to seek and pursue God, that at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now that doesn't mean he'll give you every desire of your flesh if you draw near to him. It's a little bit similar to the one we saw in Psalm 37. If your desire is for God and for God alone and for intimacy with him, then the nearer you are with him, the more you will enjoy the pleasures of intimacy with him. You can sing songs, you can pray fervent prayers that proclaim the greatness of God. But how we live, where we actually go throughout the week for our joy, what things we pursue will demonstrate what we truly perceive to be great. How do you think God feels when we start saying things about him but the pursuit of our day-to-day life shows that we're actually driven by a greater love for something else. James speaks to those to his writing in using language that the Old Testament prophets often used towards Israel when they wandered away exclusively from following God. James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, in the Old Testament, the, the language of a, of a marriage-like covenant between God and the nation of Israel is used constantly. And even though Israel rarely turned entirely from God, they would often hold on to the bits that they liked, but they would pursue other gods or, or other things, thinking, no, we need, a bit, we need these to be helpful in this areas of life. We like God what he does in this bit, but we don't like him in that bit, so we'll, we'll pursue other gods in other areas of our life. Or let me word it in another crass sort of way. Imagine I had multiple wives. I don't and I won't. I had the regular Sarah wife. I had the going to the footy to watch St Kilda Games wife. I had a going on holidays wife. I had a like driving big noisy cars wife. Just different wives that suited different situations better. I can't imagine that would go down particularly well with Sarah. I don't think she would feel particularly valued. And it's no different when we do that to God and say, God, I love you in this aspect of my life, but this other thing is going to be the satisfaction and my joy in this other area of my life. James says, you adulterous people. This friendship with the world is hostility or enmity towards God. Now, some people hear those words and think friendship with the world must mean 
being friends with people who are not Christians. It means, friendship means embracing the values of the world in which we live in. It doesn't mean avoid all people who are not Christians. It doesn't mean withdraw from every single thing that is not explicitly Christian. It doesn't mean you cannot watch a sporting game because God has never said in anywhere in the Bible, thou shalt not watch St Kilda. Although he probably should have. But it means not to embrace the values of this world which the New Testament often describes that Satan is the ruler of this world system, is the one who controls the values that this world is ruled by. Do not be a friend to the values of this world. Now, we use the word friend quite casually, especially if you're on Facebook. The idea of a friend there often just means someone that you didn't have the heart to reject their friend request that you haven't seen for years, you went to high school with them, you don't even know anything about them, but you just didn't have the hardiness to go ignore or whatever button you're supposed to press. But in the first century, when you called someone a friend, it was a close relationship. You shared common values. And James is saying, you cannot share common values with the world while claiming to also share common values with the God that you love, the one you proclaim to be your Lord. To share close love and common values with the values of this world is in opposition to the God who has come to set you free from those things. It's offensive to God. A God who, while we were enemies, came into this world and died on a cross not to give us what we deserved, but to set us free from the consequences of our sin. James appeals to the scripture again to make this point. And for some reason, Robbie, I've lost control of... And it's back. In verse 5. Again, I've got two different translations because they word it differently. And they actually both are possible translations. The ESV has, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell within us. So the ESV focuses on God yearning jealously over his people that they might serve him in faithfulness. A true statement. The NIV has a different perspective. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? So one has God being jealous for his people. The other has basically says that the natural inclination of the spirit of mankind is to be envious. Both of those are true statements and both of that are legitimate possible translations. I'm probably more inclined on the NIV's interpretation on that one just because it fits in so well with what Isaiah said back in chapter 3 about the nature of them being envious people but either way both of those things I said are genuinely true so if I've wrongly concluded I'm okay with that because nowhere does the word envy get used of God anywhere else in the scriptures and 
The use of envy fits nicely with what he's previously been saying in the previous chapter that came up to it. But as we look at the next phrase, again, it's a little bit confusing, but it applies to both of those two things, so it doesn't help us clear it up. Verse 6 says, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what does God giving more grace have to do with either of those two possible options from verse 5? Well, if our natural spirit is inclined to be envious, well, he gives more grace for our many failings. Or if it's the ESV's option that God is jealous for us and our faithful obedience, he gives more grace that we might respond in faithful obedience to carry out what he desires in us. But the rest of these verses 6 to 10 are framed in the context of humility. Both verse 6 speaks of humility, verse 10 speaks of humility. Verse 6 says, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the closing verse, verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now we've all heard the expression about a humble pie. Well, here's a humble singer. You've got humility of the bread in verses 6 and 10. And then the contents that make up that singer sort of describe this humility which James is speaking of. The Bible is full of reminders, Old Testament and New Testament, of how God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James possibly referring particularly to Proverbs 3.34. But verse 10 is an interesting one. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord. He doesn't say God will humble you. He says, you humble yourself. But in verse 6, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Without humility you'll never receive grace. Without humility, without an understanding that you have nothing and you desperately need him for everything, that is the disposition we essentially need to receive his grace and his enablement. And because God is opposed to the proud, as it says in verse 7, we should submit to him in Humility. Now, submission is often not a popular term, sometimes because it's misunderstood. People hear the word submit and they might think about someone in an authoritative position who's maybe misused the power and authority they've had to take advantage of people underneath them. But the term simply means to arrange under or to, to put things in right order. The right order that he is king, that I am not. Submission is not just obeying his commands, although it does include that. Consider the workplace scenario again. A good employee conducts themselves without being reminded not only when he's being watched, but one who embraces and characterises the values of those whom they are serving. 
Now, we can only presume that James's readers were having struggles with envy, jealousy, pride, and all sorts of bitterness and anger outworking when they're not getting what they want. And just like the Old Testament prophets, as they called out the nation of Israel for their spiritual adultery, he would always call, the prophets would always call the people to return to the Lord. And James does the same. Submit yourselves to God. Always be obedient to his will. Always submit to him as the king, the rightful ruler. But then on the other hand, we have an enemy. The devil whose desire and his goal is to prevent us from submitting to God. And James says, resist him. Notice how it, how it surrounds that call to resist the devil. It starts firstly by saying, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you and draw near to God. See, the, the sandwich is submitting to God, drawing near to God is the resisting of the devil. Sadly, I've encountered far too many Christians who live in constant fear day after day. If I do this, Satan's going to do this. If I do this, Satan's going to do that. God says to you and I, submit to God, draw near to God, resist the devil. He will flee from you. Doesn't say he might. Doesn't say if you, if you do things a particular way, he will. Or as John wrote to his, one of his people he was writing to, saying that he who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. There's no guarantee that he will flee immediately. There's no guarantee that he will never come back again. To think that even when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, it says, and he left Jesus until an opportune time. But as we submit to God, as we draw near to him, resist the devil, he will flee from you. And just as sure as we can be that the devil will flee when we resist him by submitting to God, verse 8, if we draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Now just remember the context. James was writing to a people who were selfish who are bitter, who are expressing all sorts of anger and animosity towards one another. And he says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Like, submit to him, stop doing what you're doing, resist the devil who's wanting you to continue in the path that you're currently doing, but draw near to him, he will draw near to you. He didn't say, because of the way you've been treating one another, you're in the sin bin for two weeks. After two weeks, then, then God might start drawing near to you. I remember I used to have this theory that it was though like there was a sin reset after a sleep. You know, you kind of didn't feel like you were done until you've woken up. It was a new day, as though, as though somehow when you bring things before God, it's not done at that moment, when it is. In the middle of their things, he says, you submit to God... Resist Satan, stop doing what you're doing, draw near to him, he will guarantee draw to you. And if you're serious about returning to God, two things will happen. The first is, it says, cleanse your hands. Now, this wasn't a, an ancient COVID directive. But saying, 
change your actions. Stop doing the things that you were doing. Change your ways. If you are genuine about submitting to God and drawing near to Him. And secondly, purify your hearts. We see throughout the scriptures that the heart is the very seat from which all our words come from and everything that we do. Turn your hearts, rend them back to God. Because our sin is never to be celebrated. Our sin is something we should mourn about. He says, turn that mourning into gladness. I mean, sorry, turn that gladness into mourning. The things that you were rejoicing in thinking, this is great. Weep over your sin. It saddens me sometimes when you get in Christian groups and people start talking about their past. I've seen people go into a competition of who is the sinnerest. I just made a word, sinnerest. As though somehow there's a bit of a romantic attachment to it. Or there's some achievement in, in having a greater or a more difficult past than another. We should mourn about our sin. It's not something to laugh about. The Old Testament often spoke about a fool's laughter. And I remember, much to my own regret, that before I came to Christ, one of my kind of life slogans was, as long as I'm laughing, I'm winning. Which kind of just meant, as long as I'm happy and I'm having a good old time, it doesn't matter what happens to every single person around me. I don't say that proudly, but that was my mindset before coming to Christ. And then James finishes with a reminder, humble yourselves before the Lord. He doesn't just say humble yourselves, but specifically humble yourselves before the Lord, before the one who is holy, righteous and perfect, the one who sees your every action, your every thought, your every motive. It's human nature. We are so quick to kind of maybe humble ourselves before others or compare ourselves to others. We think, yeah, I'm not doing too well, but I'm doing way better than that person over there. Their sin's way worse than me. And we kind of think, oh, I don't need to humble myself because I'm doing all right compared to, to someone else. But when we humble ourselves and we compare ourselves before the mighty, holy and perfect God, Nobody comes away without, without being humbled. And to those who are humble, who express their deep need for him in every aspect, he will exalt them. Jesus, as we're told in Philippians 2, is the perfect example of one who humbled himself for the Lord and who was highly exalted. So we are to be good and faithful servants. So much of the trouble that we experience, particularly in relationships with people, comes down to us insisting on our desires or what we think we deserve and it butting heads with someone else's opposing desires and thinking what they deserve. And right there in the middle is that selfish ambition. No one's more important. No one is more deserving. It is what the Bible calls pride God is clear he opposes the proud gives grace to the humble even says in Proverbs 8:13 God hates pride 
we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. Despite the ads that once used to say it, you are not number one. He is number one. Not only that, when he is number one, you're not even number two. Paul reminds the Philippians that we are to have the very mind of Christ, which he said is doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, this is what the humility looks like, counting others more significant than yourselves. It was interesting, I was at a conference yesterday, it was on endurance in ministry, and Kyle and Lewis, who's from Life Christian Centre, I think it is, um, North Lakes, uh, and he was saying that in his church, he's, he's got the absolute full extremes of COVID things. Like everyone who kind of says, if anyone goes within one point, less than 1.5 metres, they're not loving their neighbours. They're not wearing triple masks left, right and centre. They're not loving their neighbours. And then they've got the others kind of like, but if you're doing all these things, you're submitting to Caesar. And it's like, where do you go? He says... But where's the people who say, I don't, I'm praying for you. I know this must be hard for you during this time. Whatever you say, we'll, we'll go along with that. But you know what I've loved about this season in our church? We do have a diversity of views. But it has never been an issue of hostility and conflict. There has been humility as we approach these differing views of matters of conscience. But if we go back again to the workplace example, a good employee who is faithful, who characterises the values and things of those whom they are serving because they want to please the ones they're serving. You don't consider them a good employee or a good spouse if they just do it sometimes or when they're being watched or when someone's constantly reminding them. What James says to us, If you have wandered, submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, he will draw near to you, express it externally, change your ways, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, return to the Lord. Acknowledge that all of his ways are good. That there is no greater delight in your heart than to know him and to know the things that he has made known to us, to walk in faithful obedience. Then, when our heart is consumed by him, we will pray for things that he delights to grant because they will be according to his will, his character, his way. And then when you have a group of people who are constantly being formed by his character and his will, whose delight is in him and in him alone, you'll have a church that the world expects to see is different. That they will see a church, a group of people who display something of the glory of a God who has brought people out of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved Son. That when we see him face to face, he can say, well done, good and faithful servant.
Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are good sometimes with our words and sometimes our actions don't align as well with our words as they should. Sometimes our actions reveal a heart condition that's very different than the words that we profess. But Lord, we thank you that your grace abounds, that you call us to to return, to submit, to resist the devil who who is constantly telling us that we don't need to, to obey you in certain areas or that something else will be more satisfying or or bring us more joy, but we will draw near to you. Because at your right hand is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That we will not seek to find satisfaction in things that are lesser and are things which, by embracing them, actually places us in enmity with you. We don't want to be characterised by the things of this world. As citizens of heaven who are eagerly awaiting a saviour from there, may we be characterised by your kingdom, that we might seek first your kingdom and all the other things that we actually need will be added to us. We give you thanks for your goodness and your faithfulness and your patience with us. In Jesus' name. Amen.